church leaders. One of the things that uh, is necessary, well, I hope all the, all the topics and the subjects that we've done in this church series has been necessary, but here in this last one, uh, talking about church leaders, this is one of those, uh, in some ways, maybe a countercultural thing, because again, we go back to the idea that we are hyper-individualistic in this Western American culture. We're suspicious of authority and institutions, and so when you talk about things that ought to constrain or shape or direct us, or you talk about uh, leaders, elected or otherwise, who are put in positions of authority and responsibility, there's a little bit of, uh, little bit of that sort of independent, free-willing American self that sort of chafes against that or reacts or at least stands at it from a distance, looking at it with suspicious eyes. But it's important to recognize that all the way through Scripture, one of the ways that God most clearly demonstrates His love and care for His people is by shepherding them. God refers to Himself as a shepherd for His people. And one of the ways that He makes that shepherding evident or real in terms of the day-to-day nuts and bolts of life where the rubber hits the road is that God, from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, has always graciously provided His people with leaders. Leaders to lead, leaders to protect, leaders to feed. So in the Old Testament, you had different classes of leaders. You had priests, you had prophets, you had kings. In the New Testament, Jesus comes and presents Himself as the perfect embodiment of all of those things wrapped up into one, the perfect prophet, priest, and king. As He goes about His ministry, He sets out 12 men that are uniquely granted authority to continue the ministry of Christ after His ascension and to be effectively the builders or the founders of the church on the work of Christ. And then the apostles themselves, as we'll see here in a little bit, also work with other members of the church to instill leaders in local congregations for the good of those congregations. So one of the things that we want to remind ourselves of and with whatever else may go on or whatever may come into your mind when you think of leadership or when you think of authority is the idea that, biblically speaking, leadership and authority is given to the church as a gift from God. It's for our stability and for our unity. And we ought to consider it as a gift and value it as such. So, having said that, there, there are two offices in the New Testament church, or in the church, this new covenant community that are brought up in various ways consistently through the New Testament. We're going to look at those, and as we go through, we, didn't, we don't really have time to, to, to cover or address each one individually, so there'll be a little bit of overlap between the two, showing how they are similar and how they're different. But we want to get across the idea that what God has done in providing leaders for His church, for His people, is actually a good thing. So there are three things that we're going to try to do. If you have your notes that were on the little stands at the heads of the aisle, we're going to try to define and distinguish what the two leadership offices are in the church. We're going to try to describe what that work entails. So these these two leadership offices, what do they actually do? And then number three, we want to say a few words about the qualifications for those respective offices. So, defining and distinguishing. Oh, I should also mention, you've got a little asterisk there if you've got the, the notes that takes you down to key passages. Because the, because the Bible is not first and foremost a church manual, like it's not a, right, an, an operations guide, some of what we are doing even in this message today is we're going and we're looking at statements most of which are direct statements, but some of which are a little bit more indirect that deal with things like elders and deacons and stuff like that. And I thought it would be helpful to give you, for your own benefit after the fact, if you want to go back and look through any of these passages a little bit more, you've got a list of what, um, of what I think are the most important passages 
for looking through, studying, considering church leadership. So that's at the bottom of your notes there, and we'll be referring to some of these passages as we go along. So, first things first. If you have your Bible with you, turn to First First uh, Timothy chapter three, and you want to hold your place there, and also turn to Acts chapter six. So, First Timothy chapter three. And Acts chapter 6, we just want to make a quick or a brief observation from 1 Timothy 3 and then sort of go back to Acts chapter 6 to provide a little bit more context and background on what we're talking about here. So, number one, the, when we're talking about leadership in the church, consistently in the New Testament when church leadership is discussed, there there is only, or there is only, there are only two offices, all right, whatever, grammar Nazis out there, whichever one that's supposed to be, there is two offices, there are two offices, are, thank you, oh, look at you, all of you heaping scorn on me this morning, (laughs) there are two offices in the New Testament, that of elder and that of deacon, so one of the ways that we see this most clearly is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Notice you've got two different offices or leadership positions that Paul is delineating and describing in his letter to Timothy, which is a letter, if, if you remember we've alluded to this before, which is a letter about how to conduct oneself in the church. So in 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, Paul says, it is a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer... It is a fine work he desires to do. And then verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach, so on and so forth. So there's the overseer or the elder office. And then in the next paragraph, starting in verse 8, after he gives a list of qualifications about the kind of men who are qualified to serve in that role, he comes down to 1 Timothy 3 verse 8, and he moves to another class or category of leaders that he refers to as deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine, so on and so forth. So it's significant then that when Paul is writing a letter to Timothy about how to set the church in order, how the church ought to live and function together, when when he distinguishes or establishes two leadership roles in the church, here is what they are, the the office of overseer that's referred to elsewhere, we'll see in a minute, as elder, and then the office of deacon. Now, go from here, 1 Timothy 3, go back to Acts chapter 6. This is where I think that difference or the beginning of the two leadership roles sort of took on life in the early church. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. The church has been growing. It's been multiplying 3,000 in a day, 2,000 in a day, and numbers of converts continue to grow. And we read in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, now at this time, the disciples were, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve, that's the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose, and then here are the seven that they chose. Skip down to verse 6. These seven they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And then don't skip over too fast, or don't lose sight of verse 7. 
the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. All right, so, so here's the picture then. You've got thousands of new converts coming into, the, coming into what would later be known as the church, this new assembly, this new covenant assembly of people, acknowledging, recognizing Jesus as Messiah. It's a mixed bag of people. You have wealthy people and you have poor people. You have families, you have singles. You have widows and widowers. And you have all kinds of needs and interests represented there. In the growth of the church, one of the things that the church that characterized the church early on, which we saw in one of our previous messages, was the giving nature that the church had. They were just constantly coming and giving to provide for the needs of their fellow brothers and sisters. But at this particular point in time, there's a little bit of murmuring or grumbling that goes on because there appears to be some favoritism or at least the suspicion of favoritism that's being shown to one group of widows over another group of widows. And the church, which has been doing so well up to this point, is now threatened with a breakdown in their unity and fellowship and harmony coming not from the outside but from the inside, notice. And the apostles say, okay, no, wait, there are two things that are necessary here. God's people need to be fed spiritually by His Word. That's essential. But God's people also need their physical needs to be met. Right? So, it's sort of like the, the, the classic verse, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Right? You can take that one statement, man doesn't live by bread alone. You can say, Wait, quit your crying and complaining. As long as we're preaching well, that's all you need to be concerned about. Without recognizing the, the statement, man does not live on bread alone. He needs more than bread, but he still needs bread. Right? They need spiritual feeding, the apostles say, but they also need to be fed according to their material needs. Both of those things need to happen. But if we take it on ourselves to try to meet these physical material needs, which are genuine, legitimate needs, it's going to pull us away from another genuine, legitimate need, which is the ministry of the Word and prayer, and that area of the church is going to suffer. So what do they do? They say, select for yourself wise, spirit-filled men who can take on this responsibility. We will devote ourselves to the service of the Word, and they will devote themselves to the service of tables. So there's a way in which these leadership offices are complementary. And notice in both cases... Both of these leadership offices, which Paul will later go on to describe or designate as the office of overseer and the office of deacon, both of them are servant leadership positions. The term deacon is actually the term that the apostles use to describe how they're going to work with the Word. So when you look at, for example, in Acts chapter 6, Verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service or the deaconing of the Word. Leadership in the church is meant to be, first and foremost, an act of service to the body for their good and for their benefit. It is not about acquiring a, a position of status and recognition. Elders and overseers are given to the church so that they can serve the church by feeding them from God's Word. And deacons are appointed and given to the church so that they can serve the congregation, serve the church body with real, legitimate, genuine needs that preserve the unity and the health of the members. You need both of those. 
A church that is going to be functioning well, a church that is going to be growing, that's going to be healthy, is going to see to it that there are leaders in the church that are meeting both of those needs, both the spiritual and the material, not pitting the one against the other. That being said, let me come come down to then, if there are two offices in the church, and here's where we need to get a little bit pointed and directed to sort of where we are as a local congregation, that is, we Edgewood Baptists, okay? If there are two offices in the church, that of elder, overseer, and that of deacon, where, where are pastors, right? Where do they come in? I'm glad you asked. Turn to Acts chapter 20. And once again, you're going to hold your place in Acts chapter 20, and you're going to turn to another passage, to 1 Peter chapter 5. Okay, Acts chapter 20 and 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, in Acts chapter 20, which is where we're going to start first, JT read a portion of this passage earlier in our scripture reading and prayer. Let me backtrack a little bit. Uh, go to Acts chapter 20, verse 17. This is, this is the setup. Paul has spent years in Ephesus planning a church there and building it up. He doesn't think he's going to see these, these Christians again. So, in Miletus, he calls for the elders of the church to come meet with him. So, that's in Acts 20, 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Okay, so, in the verses that follow, who is Paul addressing? The elders. Okay, good. Hang on to that, Okay. Paul is addressing the elders. Now, skip down a little bit further to verse 28. In addressing the elders from Ephesus, Paul makes this interesting statement. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you, New American Standard says, overseers. So, elder and overseer are synonymous. You see that? Paul is talking to elders, and he calls those elders overseers. The Spirit has made you overseers. And then, keep going, Acts 20, 28, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That, that word there, shepherd, is the Greek word, is the word that, where we get our word to pastor. So, for our present-day context, we could say something like this. Paul, in Acts 20, 17, calls the elders of Ephesus to him, and in verse 28, he refers to the elders as overseers who pastor the church. Similarly, go from Acts chapter 20, go to 1 Peter chapter 5, and listen to what Peter says. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Verse 2, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Do you see how all these terms come back together again? Peter is writing, addressing elders. Elders, what are you supposed to do? Verse 2, you're supposed to pastor, you're supposed to shepherd the flock. You're supposed to have oversight. You're to be an overseer of the church. All right, all that to be said, all of this wrangling with terms, right? Words are important. All of this wrangling of terms is to say this, the evidence in the New Testament 
would lead us to believe, and I think with, with good reason and with strong conviction, that when you talk about an elder, when you talk about an overseer, when you talk about a pastor, you can use any one of those three terms, but in using those three terms, if you're, design, if you're talking about a leader in the church, all three of those terms refer to one in the same office. Does, do you follow what I'm saying? An elder is a pastor. An overseer is a pastor. A pastor is an elder, right? In the New Testament definition. One way to think about this is that the term elder and overseer is more of a title that gives us an office, and pastoring is more a description of what someone in that office does. Elders pastor. All right, so I'm going to bring this back to our present situation here at Edgewood Baptist. Years ago, Edgewood moved to a form of elder leadership or elder governing, that the church was going to be led by a group of elders. And in many ways, Edgewood was actually ahead of the curve. There were not many Baptist churches in particular that were structuring or living out their life together with that kind of a leadership structure, with elders and with deacons. But because you weren't starting from scratch, you already had a lead pastor along with other associate pastors there. It created sort of a a unique situation in which here at Edgewood we had for years and years, we had elders and deacons, but then we also had pastors who were sort of a separate group. Okay? What I'm going to, well, what I'm not just going to suggest, what I'm going to encourage you to do to think about. This is something that the, the current elders here at Edgewood and the pastors have been discussing and thinking about. We ought to think very seriously about trying to get our understanding, our convictions of Scripture to line up well with our practice of Scripture, which means this. We have a handful of elders, and we have a handful of deacons. We also right now have two men who are serving as associate pastors who are sort of in this nebulous category here, JT and Andy, in case you didn't know, all right? JT and Andy are serving as pastors. They're feeding the congregation. They're leading. They're giving accountability in the Word. They're discipling. They're doing all the things that elder overseers ought to do, right? What do elder overseers do? They pastor. If these men are pastoring, and pastoring is what elders do, what ought these men ought to be recognized as? I think they ought to be recognized as elders. Going, looking ahead down the road, what that also means is that as a church body, if in the future we look to bring on another pastor to serve and to labor and to work for this congregation, we ought to be considering that to bring on another pastor is to be bringing on another elder. If the New Testament seems to distinguish and delineate two offices, we want as best as we can to have our practice lining up with the pattern that we see in Scripture. What does the Word say? If this is what the Word says, that's what we want to do. Well, we haven't done it that way before. Okay, I understand. But first and foremost, let's not talk about what we have or haven't done. Let's talk about what Scripture says we ought to do. And if Scripture says we ought to do this, well, then by all means, let's do that. And let's trust that when we follow what God has laid out in His Word, when we see a clear pattern or a clear blueprint in Scripture that we attempt to adopt and live out ourselves, let's trust that that actually is going to work to our benefit and our good because God is the wise and good and gracious builder of His church for the glory of His Son. He does not need our help or our advice to improve upon the governing of His body. He knows how His body ought to be led, and we ought to trust Him for that. 
I'm going to leave that there, okay? If you have any questions or complaints, Banks Carroll is sitting over here to my right. He would love to talk to you for hours. No, I'm just kidding. So, two offices, elder and deacon. Elders have the unique responsibility of pastoring, of shepherding the church. Deacons are the ones who come in and who meet, who look to meet primarily material, physical, practical needs of the body so that the pastors of the church can put their focus on the ministry of the Word and prayer. That's in Acts chapter 6, 1 through 4 dynamic. All right, so get down to the, to the next section. We want to talk a little bit more about describing the work. And on this part, I want to, want to speak especially to, to you as the congregation, because when you talk about what leaders ought to be doing, there's an easy way to slip into complacency and to think, yeah, that's right. We have these leaders here because they're supposed to be doing, and then you have your laundry list of things to do, right? And especially those guys that we pay. Yeah, that's why we pay you. We pay you to do, and you have your laundry list of things, right? All right, go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm not going to read these verses right now. But what I'm going to suggest to you is that if you go through and if you look at the description of an elder, if you look at the description of a deacon in 1 Timothy 3, if you pause for a minute, what you will find and realize is that there is not one thing that Paul says of an elder or that Paul says of a deacon that he does not also say about every other member of the church. So, for example, just talking about qualifications, if you go to, uh, let's see, let's say verse 3, 1 Timothy 3, 3, an elder should not be addicted to wine or pugnacious, that is, testy, always looking for a fight. Is that something that only elders should be? Well, only elders should not be drunks looking for a fight. But the rest of you Edgewood people... Have at it. Certainly not. Moreover, everything that a pastor or that a deacon does is something that the church as a whole does. So, for example, elders give themselves over to the ministry of the Word and prayer. Isn't that what the church as a whole is to do? To give themselves over to the ministry of the Word and prayer? Are pastors the only people who are supposed to pray for the congregation? Certainly not. Are pastors the only ones who are supposed to disciple, encourage, correct, instruct, plead, persuade people according to God's Word? Certainly not. Are deacons the only ones that are supposed to look out for practical needs within the body and then try to meet those needs? Certainly not. Everything that we see in Scripture that elders and deacons are to do, you can find another chapter and verse where the quote-unquote average Christian is told to do the exact same thing. The difference between leaders and congregation is not a difference in kind, Right? It's not a class difference, it's a difference in degree. So whereas we are all supposed to speak the Word to one another, pastors are uniquely charged to speak the Word more often and more frequently because that is one of their primary job descriptions. Do you, you see? But you do all of that as well. Deacons are uniquely charged with maintaining the unity of the body by meeting real needs that crop up within the church. But that's what we're all supposed to be doing, elders and congregation, pew warmers alike. There's not a hierarchy in the church where you have the super saints, and those are the people who 
go into church leadership, and then you've got all the rest of the plebes, right, who just kind of sit and they do their thing and they write their check every now and then and they, they leave everything else to the people who are really supposed to be doing this work. That's not the way that the church functions. So in the same way that we want to see leaders at Edgewood who strike a good, healthy balance, who complement one another, where you've got leaders who are devoting their time and energy to studying the Word, to communicating, to teaching, to pressing the Word down deep into the hearts and minds of the congregation. And you've got other leaders who are coming alongside of needs and meeting these gaps that exist, whether in physical, clothing, financial, right, emotional, whatever it is. In the same way that you want all that to happen with leadership, you want that to happen within the body as a whole as well. Nevertheless, nevertheless, there ought to be, if we can say it this way, a sense in which we prioritize the ministry of the Word ahead of everything else. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Paul says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Go from here over to Hebrews chapter 13. And look at Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the results of their conduct, imitate their faith. Paul in 1 Timothy 5, 17, and the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 7, prizes, emphasizes, the ministry of God's Word to His people. Why is that? Well, it's because it's the Word that really gives life. Right? You can… charitable organizations can meet all kinds of physical material needs and still leave people dead going to hell. The church is the unique body of people, the unique covenant community that says, in here with us is where you find words of life and you find a life lived out according to the Word. Come and hear. Listen to the voice of your Creator. Listen to the voice of your Good Shepherd calling you to come that you can have life and have it abundantly. If you don't have the Word, you don't have a church. So we want at Edgewood, more than anything else, we want to be people who prize the Word of God because that's what we want to feed on. We know that it's the Word that has given us new birth by the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that it's the Word that nourishes us, that sustains us that upholds us, and we know that it's the Word that's going to keep us in the faith all the way until that last final day when we stand before Christ face to face. And knowing that if we get the Word right, the other pieces will fall into place, not effortlessly, it'll take work, but knowing that the Word is first, we need to let the Word be the thing that leads out in all that we say and do. So the work is shared by elders and deacons, or by pastors and deacons, but not shared in such a way that they're the only ones who are doing the work. Everything that pastors and deacons do is in one shape or another something that the church as a whole does. It's just that it differs by way of degree. There is a certain kind of devotion that church leaders give to the ministry of the Word or to meeting practical needs that goes above and beyond, perhaps what happens in the, in the regular day-to-day -day affairs. 
with the balance that comes in meeting and feeding the church on the Word of Christ and meeting material needs, we, also, we always need to remember that the Word is always primary. The Word is what gives us life. It calls us into existence. And if we don't get the Word first, everything else is futile. Last area to look at, discerning qualifications. Number one, so who is it that's qualified to fill these leadership roles? If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and if you were to do a quick skim of verses 1 through 7, which is, gives you the qualifications for someone serving as an elder, and then you go to verses 8 through 13, and you look at qualifications for those serving as deacons, what you'll notice is that without exception, no, I'm sorry, there is one exception, the qualification of being able to teach for the elder. Without qualification, I just said it again, with one qualification, the ability to teach, every other characteristic is related to character. Edgewood, when you look for leaders that you're going to recognize, that you're going to appoint, do not start by looking for a CEO. That's not what Paul says we ought to be looking for. Do not look for someone who's a social networker. Don't look for someone who's on the cutting edge of trends or society or culture. That's not what the Scripture tells us to look for. What you want, what we want here at Edgewood, we want leaders who above and beyond everything else, we can point to them and say, okay, they, they may not be perfect. No, no, no. We'll say this. They certainly are not perfect, okay? But they're godly and they're worth imitating. This world is filled with people who get into positions of power and authority and influence for all of the wrong reasons. Churches put people in positions of leadership for the wrong reasons. At the end of the day, what the church needs are not perfect people, but people who are passionate about pursuing Christ and who want to say something like, okay, I don't have it all figured out, I don't have it all perfected, but I at least know this is the way to go, come walk with me. Right? 1 Peter chapter 5, go back there again. First Peter 5, verse 2, Peter says to the elder, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. There it is. What we want to be for one another in cultivating discipling relationships, in cultivating and training leaders within the church, we want to be the kind of people that are able to look at one another and say, walk with me as I walk after Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Let me draw your attention to one other thing. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
Let me say something about not just the qualifications, but the, the way in which someone who is qualified to, to serve as a leader in a church ought to experience what we'll call, just for the, for the sake of this morning, we'll call an internal and an external call. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, it's a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. One of the marks of someone who would be a leader in the church is that they actually desire to serve in that capacity. Right? I, I understand, I know the spiritual thing to do and to say is, oh no, no, not me. I, I can't do that. But understand, if a person understands what leadership in the church is, that it is one person telling another or a group of people, walk with me as I walk with Christ, why would you not want to have the ability to do that? Why would you not want to have that kind of, if we want to use the language, platform? Men, if in the New Testament the qualifications that God gives for those who would serve as leaders within His church are the exact same qualifications that He would charge any Christian with, if you're a member here for 10, for 15, for 20 years, and you're not moving, whether organically or not, into more of a leadership role, you ought to ask yourself why that is. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying everyone needs to be officially appointed as a church leader. But, but what I am saying is this. If there, if there are no super saints who serve as church leaders, but just simply godly men who want to follow the Lord, if you don't have it in your mind that you want to be this kind of person, something is not right. If you don't want to be the kind of person that someone else could point to and say, you know, he may not have it all together, but he loves the Lord, and he was chasing hard after Christ. Who does not want to have that kind of thing said about them? If you don't have any desire or any interest in investing into the people of God, working to build and construct and expand the kingdom of God, because this is one of the only things that's going to last into eternity in the new heavens and earth, you might want to consider whether or not your priorities are in the right place. Please hear me again. This is not a guilt trip saying if you are not an elder, if you are not a deacon, then you are not serious about your walk with the Lord. That's, that's not the point that I'm making. My simple point is this, though. Because... Those in leadership are to model Christ-like maturity for the church. If that sort of concern or interest does not factor into your thinking, something is amiss because you're not wanting to grow. You're not wanting to invest in the lives of others. And that would be a sad commentary of where your heart and mind is. The Lord can use you in any number of ways. It does not have to be in formal, ordained, recognized ministry within a church. But man, wouldn't it be great if at Edgewood, the kind of growth and maturity that we see happening in the lives of the members here is of such that we say, we have too many people who are qualified to serve as leaders. Give me that problem all day long. 
and then church. Let me encourage you this way, precisely because of the fact that not everyone will in fact serve as an elder, as a deacon, don't underestimate the necessary role that you still play, which is this. There is an internal call that a church leader ought to have, a desire to serve the people of God, to build, to work, to labor. But listen, the internal call, the desire that Paul talks about in 3.1, 1 Timothy 3.1, is not all that there is because there are plenty of people who may aspire or desire to be in that kind of a position who really ought not to be there. Which is why Paul goes on after that and says, okay, if, if, if you have a guy in your congregation that is wanting to serve the church in this way, here's what you church need to check out. You need to make sure that he has this kind of character and that he has these kinds of giftings and abilities. Do you see how that works? You, as a church body, as a congregation, are responsible then to make sure that the leaders that are being raised up within the congregation are being recognized and put into place, and that those who ought not to be leaders in the congregation are not being put where they don't belong. It's a good thing if someone desires to be in church leadership, but you know what the other side of that coin is? The church ought to be able to look at their lives and look at the way that they are currently serving and ministering and say, yes, I think that fits with you, or eh, I don't really think so. There's a day and time when I desired to play in the NBA. That desire was not sufficient to get me there, and it was a good thing that people could tell me that. The church works in much the same way. You have a particular responsibility to encourage and to cultivate leadership within the body. That will, in turn, serve you well over the long haul. God is doing all of this in us and through us in order to make His church a mature, growing, healthy body of Christ for His glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Father, thank You that in Your kindness and in Your wisdom, You have given to us all that we need for life and godliness. You have done that primarily through your word, which is sufficient and adequate to equip us for every good work, to impart to us not only the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but the fullness of Christ in our hearts and minds. But we also thank you that you have not left us without guidance and instruction as to how we ought to live together, and that one of the ways that you bless your people is by maturing and growing and raising up leaders from within our midst that will be able to serve the congregation for greater growth and greater maturity. Father, I thank you and praise you for how over so many years you have done that for Edgewood so faithfully. Help us to be thankful for that. And help us, Father, to continue to prize that role in that relationship because we recognize it not simply as a position that is to be acquired for a person's pride or popularity, but that these are roles that are played, that are fulfilled in order to make the church as a whole healthy and strong and mature in Christ. Help us to trust you as we follow you in that respect. In Jesus' name, amen. I muted myself, sorry. I'm going to shift gears here. I originally planned to, for us to end with the first song we started with, but uh, you sounded so good on that last Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us. And I'm going to shift gears with the band as well and just have piano and us singing because it sounded so good. And I know that the Lord was pleased with it. I'm not saying the, the instruments weren't great, but I want to hear you. And so would you stand as we just uh, close out with the song Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us?
Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. Let's have just our voices lifting up to his will. Amen. There's just something about hearing 200 voices say, blessed Jesus. Amen. God bless. You're dismissed.